This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Today we are lucky to have Professor Dr. Harry Laver from the Department of Military History. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Happy to be here. And we also have with us uh, Dr. Bill Nance. Happy to be here. So Dr. Laver is, uh, among many things, an expert on General Grant, uh, one of the great figures of the mid-19th century in American military history. And so today what we're going to talk about is Grant, uh, both as a person and as a commander, and, and his influence on uh, the U.S. military, both the military of the Civil War and afterwards. Uh, so, Dr. Nance, if you want to take it away. All right, uh, Dr. Piper. First off, what drew you to Grant in the first place? What drew me to Grant? Um, initially, I'd say it was having been born in Ohio and then growing up much of my life in the American South, I heard Yankee quite a bit. Uh, and so I was drawn to the Civil War from a young age. And <clears throat> being a Yankee, um, I, of course, focused my readings on the northern side, uh, and hence U.S. Grant. And, but really, I, I think that the professional interest began when I was teaching in Mississippi and was going to the Vicksburg and Shiloh battlefields and being in what was Grant territory and just seeing the terrain there, learning more about the battles, more intrigued about Grant, and that just led to further reading about Grant, and it just sort of took off from there. Okay, so uh, what is it about Grant that kind of pulls you in? Uh, what, what about Grant? One, he's a winner. Uh, but, but secondly, the more I learned of Grant, um, his, his success as a military commander, of course, is part of that and how he achieved that success. But I think at a more personal level, I think Grant really represents something of the American story and the average, the average man, uh, in the sense that, as, as I think most people who know anything about Grant know, he had some significant personal challenges to overcome. Uh, tremendous failures early in his life, up really until the Civil War began, and of course there's the, the question of his drinking, uh, which he did have a drinking problem. There, there's no question about that, not to the degree that we often hear of, but he had a drinking problem. Despite that, Grant uh, continued to struggle and fight. Uh, knowing he had a drinking problem, he was, throughout his life, he struggled with that and sought help when needed and, and really worked hard at overcoming it and achieved tremendous success. And I think uh, probably everybody has some sort of their own personal struggle, whether it's drinking or drugs or, or you name it, whatever it is just personally. Uh, that individuals have. And I think Grant, in that sense, set aside all the, the military success he had as something of a nice model to follow of just continuing to press and fight against whatever demons that you have to fight against as an individual. So all that sort of wraps up into you know, that my in interest in Grant. Okay, that's uh, Grant's always uh, been kind of one of my personal heroes too. I'm I'm a big fan of the plugger, uh, the kind of the, the hard fighter there. So could you take us through kind of like uh, Grant's early early uh, you talked about his early struggles in his early life. So can you talk us through kind of like where did he come from? What made this guy him, uh, his uh, beginnings? Yeah, his, his early life, it, it was something of a struggle. He was born in Ohio to a, a what we would think of today as a middle-class family. Uh, his father dabbled in local politics, but um, it became clear at a very young age to his father, Grant was not destined for greatness. Nothing in Grant's early life suggested he, he, he was going to have greatness. Um, other, other children called him useless, Grant, rather than, than Ulysses. Uh, Grant himself told the story of, at a very young age, probably about 9 or 10, he um, got the, the urge that he wanted to own his own horse. And so he pestered his father relentlessly as, you know, with, with determination that, that young boys and I think only dogs have of wanting a horse. Well, the, the, a farmer down the road was selling a horse and his father gave him $25 and said, you go down and offer him 
If he won't take that, offer him $22.50. If he won't take that, offer him $25. But under no means do you offer more than $25. So Grant, with money in his pocket, heads down. Approaches the farmer and says, yeah, I want to buy the horse. And my dad says to offer you $20. But if you won't take that to offer you $22.50, and if you won't take that offer, and, and as Grant says, it doesn't take an extraordinarily intelligent man to realize how much he had to pay for the horse. So his father knew he did not have a budding businessman on, on his hands. So with that, his father, uh, through his um, having dabbled in local politics, uh, was able to get Grant an appointment to West Point. And when his father told him the appointments come through, Grant said, I, I, I'm not going. I have no interest in that. And his father said, well, I think you're going. And if I think you're going, you think you're going too. So very shortly, Grant in, enrolled at West Point. And during his time at West Point, um, he was mediocre at best. Um, there was, again, nothing that showed any promise of military greatness. He excelled at horsemanship, which he did throughout his life. Uh, barely survived French. Did well in math. But other than that, he was just mediocre. Finished um, 21 out of 39 cadets, so just below halfway, uh, half middle of his class. Um, and from there, he went off into the Army. He fought in the Mexican-American War. He was did a competent job, received a, a few awards, but average, again, at best. Uh, then he was sent after the Mexican War, after a short period, to the West Coast of the United States, uh, Oregon and California, and uh, isolated, desolate postings. And there was nothing to do. He was miserable. His wife, children were back home. Uh, he missed them terribly, um, suffered from deep melancholy, and this is when he really turned to drink. Uh, and so in 1854, we don't know precisely the circumstances, but he resigned from the Army. And it was a case of either he was told, you've got to resign because of the drinking, or he just recognized he could not continue to survive. Uh, so he resigned in 1854, went back home, tried life as a civilian, uh, tried farming, grew rock, not much else, tried business, lost money, went into business with partners, they ran off with the money, so it was just failure after failure. Okay. Do you, do you think, and this may be my ignorance of naming standards in the early 19th century, but do you think being given a, a name from mythology like Ulysses kind of played with this idea that he was maybe an average child who uh, of whom great things were expected? Uh, that, that, which, is, which is an intriguing question. I think the naming practices were just as, as you're, you're identifying. Uh, and I don't know that, that based on his family circumstances necessarily greatness was expected of, of a child in that age. Uh, and again, certainly at a very young age, greatness was not expected from, from his parents. And certainly Grant didn't expect greatness from himself. He was just simply trying to survive throughout much of his early life. And uh, certainly not in the realm of horse buying. Uh, no, no. Horse handling, yes, but not horse buying. Yes. <laughs> so you talk about this fairly unspectacular officer, just kind of there. Now, okay, the Union Army, or the American Army, is expanding rapidly uh, with, the, with the outbreak of war. So how does a unspectacular mediocre junior officer suddenly end up into the point where he's commanding at the general officer level so rapidly. How does he get from there to there? A uh, combination of ability and patronage uh, politics. All right, so when, when the, the war breaks out, Grant is um, at rock bottom, essentially. He, he's had to take a job uh, working at his father's leather goods store in Galena, Illinois. And for Grant, this, this was the worst possible scenario because having to take a job from his father meant he had failed. Right? He had failed earlier as a soldier. He had failed as a businessman. He had failed as a farmer. In his mind, he had failed as a husband, as a father, and as a son. So he was at rock bottom working for his father in, in this leather goods store. So when the war broke out, uh, immediately, the call went out for volunteers after um, Fort Sumter, Lincoln asked for the 75,000 volunteers, and so people were volunteering. And immediately across the, the North, uh, communities were looking for anybody with military experience. When Grant resigned from the Army in 1854, he held the rank of captain. Uh, and so everyone in Galena knew he had been in the Army and uh, he was fairly proficient at drill. Uh, and so he was given the task of commanding the 21st Regiment of Illinois Volunteers. Uh, took over for their first commander who was a complete screw-up. 
Grant got them trained up and fairly proficient um, in drill. Uh, and that was recognized uh, in part by some of the political leadership uh, in Illinois. Uh, a congressman named Elihu Washburn noticed Grant, and really Washburn is going to be Grant's patron throughout his career. Uh, and so he will begin promoting Grant uh, to, to higher command. <laughs> How important in the 19th century political system was that military political patronage system? Uh, quite, quite important. Uh, I think those who are familiar with the American Civil War are aware of political generals uh, and the fact that uh, individuals were given military command based on their political power uh, and the weight that they could bring. Uh, and so that was very important, uh, especially in the, in the Army in that period where, uh, and maybe not that different today, uh, but where general grade officers, it, went, it had to go through Congress, and that's where the patronage came into play. And so Grant having a patron who was sort of backing him throughout really was important, especially early in his career when he still had that reputation. And it was a fairly small army when the Civil War broke out. Grant was known across much of the army and known primarily for his problems he had earlier in, in his career. So there was a lot to overcome that that political patronage was going to be necessary. So Grant spent the entire first part of the war out in the West, what we would know really as the Midwest uh, today. Uh, and we, talk, we look at the problems that the uh, Union Army experienced in the, in the Eastern Theater, mainly Virginia, West Virginia area. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about like what kept him in the West. Was it just luck of the draw? Was it his patronage? Was it that's where he chose to be? Why? Why is he out in the West as, a, as opposed to kind of going where the action is over into the main Eastern theater? Uh, the the initial reason is geography. Uh, if we look at early battles in the American Civil War, both East and West, the units that are fighting in those battles <coughs> are from that part of the country. Uh, so in the East, it's primarily New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey units. In the West, or today the Midwest, it's Illinois and Iowa. Uh, in Indiana units as an example. And so Grant, having been uh, first going into the Army with an Illinois regiment, uh, it's logical he's going to stay out in the West. And of course for many individuals back in Washington, especially senior political leadership, Grant is an unknown. Right? He's, he's just simply an obscure colonel at the beginning of the war. Uh, so it's going to take some time before he gets the notoriety to be pulled back east. And that ties into that political patronage where depending on how high your political patronage is, it depends on how high you might rise in yes. the overall uh, formation. Exactly. So he's got command of regiment. He's doing pretty well. Talk me through how he gets from being a good colonel into commanding an army because there's obviously a jump there. Uh, there is. <coughs> And the, the initial um, first step for Grant, really, in growing as a commander, um, as a colonel, uh, comes in in the, the summer of 1861. So Fort Sumter has occurred in April, and it's in the summer of 1861, where Grant receives his, his first opportunity to lead his men into combat. Uh, and he's given the, the task of, of taking his unit across the Mississippi River from Illinois into Missouri. Uh, and after crossing the river, he's supposed to break up a band of Confederates that are trying to organize themselves. Uh, so in the morning uh, of the, the day that he, they, they undertake this action, he crosses the river. Um, that night, they didn't make contact that day, that night they go into camp, and Grant recalled later that that, that night he was tossing and turning all and he could not sleep because all that was in his mind was combat was imminent. And what he had seen combat in the Mexican-American Wars and significant combat. So he knew what that, that was about, but this was the first time in his career that he was the senior officer on the field. There was no one else to turn to, no one else who had the responsibility. It was him. And, and he said uh, it just weighed on him tremendously. So the next morning he got everybody up, got them in column. They started moving towards the Confederate camps, which was on the other side of a hill. And he, he recalled that as they were making their way up the hill, uh, he, his thought was he wanted to be anywhere rather than there. Uh, he said his heart was beating so fast he thought it was going to jump out of his throat. And interestingly, he put it at that he didn't have the courage to stop and turn everybody around. So just inertia kept them going up the hill. 
And he said that, that when he got to the brow of the hill and looked out on the Confederate camps, what he saw was nothing but smoldering campfires. Because knowing that Grant was approaching with his men, the Confederates had retreated and withdrawn. And he said that at that moment, it, it was almost as if a lightning bolt struck him because he realized that the enemy had been as afraid of him as he had been of them. And he said from that point on for the rest of the war that whenever battle was imminent, he would get anxious, yes, but never that paralyzing fear that he had going up that hill. So that's, I think, the, the first step we see in Grant really growing as a commander uh, of recognizing the responsibilities and taking that on. He didn't make contact with the Confederates, however, so he really still hasn't led his men, men in, into combat. But it seemed to be a successful operation because they had to retreat. Yeah, and, and a couple of good points there. Um, one is uh, I would be remiss to, to not point out that Dr. Nance himself is a combat veteran, so uh, uh, he can probably empathize with some of this from the global war on terror. Yeah, and it, when you point out the fact of you're the man in charge or you're the person in charge uh, and you sit there and you go, there's that moment of, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm the one that's responsible. That that there is that moment of fear and uh, what, what's funny is is that it never truly goes away it's always still there so did uh, but you can kind of learn to overcome that so it's fascinating to hear grant saying yeah i was i always had was worried but i never let it paralyze me after that so it seems like a hundred something, 150 years ago, same same kind of deal. Yeah, I think we also have an opportunity to hear here to kind of climb into Grant's brain for a little bit. Um, the, the Civil War is is a war of men on battlefields, but it's also a war of ideals, right? So at this early stage of the war, when Grant is proving himself to himself and to others, what is his ideology about the war? What is he saying and thinking about why this war is happening? Yeah, Grant's view. Um in some respects, I'll say, is not that different from Lincoln's view, uh, that this is a war about the Union and maintaining the Union. Uh, Grant was not an anti-slavery advocate before the war. Uh, as the war goes on, he I, I'm not going to say he becomes an anti-slavery advocate, but again, he aligns more with, with Lincoln and, and believing that the institution was morally corrupt, that it was, and, and Grant really believed this before the war. Uh, that it corrupted everyone who was involved, slave owner, as well as at times the, the enslaved. Uh, and so as the war goes on, his thinking evolves as does Lincoln's, that this has become uh, a war not just about maintaining the Union, but the elimination of slavery. Yeah, that original sin kind of idea. That original sin kind of idea, and that really for the Union to survive, <clears throat> slavery is going to have to be eliminated. Uh, so in, in that sense, and in really just about every sense, Grant and Lincoln, even though they are separated by hundreds of miles and don't meet each other until well into the war, they're very much on the same page in their evolution uh, of thought about the war and what the war is about and what has to be done to win this war, which is why they make such a great combination when they finally do get together late in the war. We've talked a lot about uh, Grant's kind of early, uh, kind of formative stages. And what's interesting is that most of us, when we kind of think about Grant, we think of kind of the Grant of 1864, 1865, kind of that slugger, the attrition, the battles of attrition, Cold Harbor, uh, Petersburg. And we can talk about those in a minute. But what's fascinating is, is that his earlier battles are the complete antithesis, antithesis of those. Uh, they're marked by rapid maneuver. They're marked by him winning battles really through out-positioning and out-maneuvering his opponents. So can you talk me through, like, what is Grant's philosophy on battle early on? What's, what's, what's driving how he fights? Yeah, Grant, um, he, he, again, he's a nice study in, in the development of a commander over the course of the war, where we talk about in that first near engagement where he's nearly petrified of, of thinking of combat. Over, over the, the first battles that he does fight, uh, we see Grant's growth as a commander. Uh, the maneuver part um, comes with the, the Vicksburg campaign, but there's a series of battles before that that we, we really see Grant, Grant developing. Uh, in the first battle in which he actually does lead his men in, into combat uh, is the Battle of Belmont. 
uh, November the 7th of 1861. And it's again, it's another raid across the, the Mississippi River to go up against some Confederates. Uh, and <clears throat> Grant commands his army quite well. They very quickly overwhelm the Confederates um, who were in their, their camps and they tried to form line of battle, but Grant's men overwhelmed them. What Grant doesn't do is at that point maintain control over his units uh, and they start pillaging, which in the meantime, of course, the Confederates are reorganizing and counterattacking. Grant nearly loses his force. From that battle, he'd learned you've got to maintain control throughout the battle, which he will do from that point forward as, as um, uh, for further additional campaigns. The last bit of really seeing Grant develop as a commander uh, comes at the Battle of Shiloh uh, in, in April of, of 1862. Uh, and that's a battle in, in which um, uh, the truth is, although Grant will somewhat deny it, his army is very much taken by surprise um, by a Confederate army. The armies are essentially the same size, about 40,000, uh, just off the, the Tennessee River, uh, southern Tennessee. Uh, over the course of the first day of that fight, the, the Confederates drive Grant's army back to the Tennessee River. Uh, and really, his army is, is teetering on the verge of annihilation at that point. Uh, night comes, which stops the fighting. And the expectation is across all the Union commanders is that Grant is going to order a withdrawal back across the Tennessee River to the relative safety of the eastern side of the river <coughs> and live to fight another day. William Tecumseh Sherman is Grant's, um, at this point, he, Sherman has become Grant's most trusted corps commander. And Sherman finds Grant very late that night, uh, crouched down under a, a tree close to the, the riverbanks. And at first, Sherman says nothing to Grant. Uh, Grant's very silent. He's just smoking a cigar. And, and Sherman finally says to Grant, uh, well, Grant, we've had the devil's own day, haven't we? Uh, they had suffered who knows how many thousands of casualties. Units didn't know where their commanders were. Commanders had no idea where their units were. It had just been absolute chaos. And in response to Sherman's question, Grant says, yeah, uh, we have. Uh, but lick them tomorrow. And Grant then went on to explain to Sherman how whoever attacks first tomorrow is most likely to win. And, and Grant, his assessment was right. Both armies were exhausted. Both armies were disorganized and had been through chaos. And so he started issuing orders. We're attacking in the morning, which surprised all of his subordinate commanders. That's the moment where typically I would say Grant really becomes Grant. Of what he had learned over his previous battles, uh, he was putting into play. And if he had not made that decision, if he had withdrawn, I don't think we'd be talking about Grant today. He would have been shuffled off to some far out west posting and he would have disappeared from history. Do you think uh, his relationship with Sherman and his tr and that mutual trust and relationship they'd built had anything to, played, in, played a part in that decision of, I don't know much, but I know I can count on a couple key people, Sherman being one of them, and that's why I'm sticking around. I think to, to a degree, Shiloh is where Grant and Sherman, I think, really establish firmly their relationship because Sherman had not been with Grant <coughs> at his early ba earlier battles. But um, early in the fight that same day, uh, Grant tried to find his corps commanders and he found Sherman fairly early. And he saw Sherman was doing the, the best he could with what he had. Sherman wasn't demanding, I've got to have reinforcements like other corps commanders. Sherman was managing the fight and for Grant, <coughs> that was good. So it's really, I think, the establishment of the beginning of that trust that's going to become essential to how the war progresses from that point forward. Yeah, you bring up a good point about, uh, in, in particular, Civil War scholars and buffs will know of the relationship between Grant and Sherman, two of the kind of formative figures of American military history. Um, how was Grant at developing subordinates throughout his, his uh, career? Uh, Grant, um, I'm going to say, was quite good to a degree. Uh, if we look at Grant's relationship with his various key subordinate commanders over the course of the war, he is uh, extraordinarily successful in his relationship with Sherman, uh, in part because they both had the same philosophy um, about their approach to war to the point that it really is a partnership. By the time Grant is General-in-Chief um, in 1864, he and Sherman are collaborating where they will argue with each other on strategy, which is, is a credit to Grant that he's willing to listen to that subordinate and Sherman that he feels comfortable enough that he can do that. Right. Uh, a couple of other illustrations of, of how Grant is with, with his subordinates and developing them. 
a relatively speaking young officer named James McPherson uh, rises to, to army command by the time he's killed in 1864 and Grant recognizes this is a younger officer who's not as experienced and the orders that Grant will issue in the communications you can see Grant in those communications going into more explanations of why they're going to do what they're going to do whereas Sherman he can just say this is what we're going to do and Sherman almost intuitively understands so he develops in, in McPherson an understanding of war and strategy and, and operations that he doesn't take the time to do with their commanders. I think Grant is especially good at working with his naval counterparts. Uh, in the, his first encounters with his naval uh, uh, counterparts early in the war in early 1862, he is not very good at this. Uh, he essentially ignores them in bringing them into his thinking and the planning despite the fact they're essential but the first individual he's dealing with is a, a naval officer named Andrew Foote who is quite a bit older than Grant uh, close to 40 years experience in the Navy at this point and Foote really sets him straight about the cooperation that's necessary and and we have to remember this is a period in which there, the thought of joint operations is not formalized, defined in any way. It's very much personality driven. One service cannot order the other to do anything, so it's cooperation. Grant learns very well from Foote early on, and they cooperate amazingly well. And then on the Vicksburg campaign, where David Dixon Porter is the naval commander, and it is essential to, to the capture of Vicksburg, Grant and Porter are, are working as almost a, a well-oiled collaborative machine. They understand each other, they understand the support and the, the capabilities each service brings to that, and they work very well together. So uh, what's fascinating about the entire Mississippi campaign is the, we often tend to talk about the land battles, but we don't we forget about that big body of water that so defined the campaign, uh, both for logistics and also as an obstacle. So. What's fascinating to me is, is that you look at Grant and he's on the wrong side of the river from Vicksburg and he's trying to get across and he's trying to get it and he keeps failing. And so there's the uh, running of the uh, running the Mississippi River. Um, whose idea was that? Was that Porter's? Was that uh, Grant's? Whose idea is it to just basically make this bold maneuver and flank Vicksburg entirely? Yeah, and th this is an example, really, of the collaboration that went on between Grant and Porter. Uh, in the early months of 1863, when, when Grant has the task of taking Vicksburg and opening up the Mississippi River, Porter's there working with Grant. And the number of operations they, they will attempt to try to take Vicksburg, uh, it is collaboration between the two of them. Uh, the, the three most prominent operations, which we won't talk in detail about, but Lake Providence, the Yazoo Pass, and Steele's Bayou. Um, Porter comes up with the Steele's Bayou, Bayou idea. Grant comes up with the Yazoo Pass idea. Grant, along with other Army commanders, sort of raises the Lake Providence idea. But at each step of the way, for each of those, Grant is talking with Porter, and they are, they are going back and forth about what can we do has there been recon done? Can the Navy actually get through? So it is very much collaborative. By the time we get to the point where the U.S. Navy will sail past the bluffs of Vicksburg under you know, fire that nobody thought was possible, it is again a collaborative effort. Both of, both of the commanders, Grant and Porter, come to the realization that to take Vicksburg, you're going to have to get Grant's army on the eastern side of the river, the same side as Vicksburg, and the only way to do that is to ferry them across the river south of Vicksburg. You've got to get the Navy past Vicksburg, south of Vicksburg, to do that. So they both come to that realization. They're both absolutely committed to taking the city. Porter knows his risk is losing his flotilla going past Vicksburg, but he understands Grant has the risk for his army once the operation begins on land. Uh, so again, it's, it's a nice illustration. Both recognize the risks and what their part has to be in the operation to take Vicksburg. And on the Vicksburg campaign, once he actually gets on the other side of the river, it's one of those fascinating points, particularly when we talk about the man that was paralyzed by fear going up a hill just, what, a year, two years prior, mm -hmm. now basically cuts his entire army loose from its logistics and marches around the Confederate army completely with his flanks in the open 
until he can uh, uh, link up back with his naval supports on the north side of Vicksburg. So what's driving that? Because you see this one, uh, this very unsure man, and now all of a sudden, two years later, he's undertaking what is considered to be, by some theorists, an impossible operation, and yet he pulls it off. And I, th I think uh, my, my point about Grant becomes Grant at Shiloh, uh, that's the point where he starts to gain confidence in himself. I mean, he, had, he was just haunted by self-doubts uh, going back throughout his whole life. But at Shiloh, his determination to resume the fight the next day and then win that battle builds that confidence. Uh, by the time we get to the Vicksburg campaign, his confidence is quite good, right? Because he has won a series. He hasn't lost a battle up to this point. And at this point, uh, when he crosses the river to undertake the campaign you're making reference to, where he all but cuts his supply lines, he still has a tentative supply line for some of the essentials as you know, ammunition and such, but most everything else, right, he has cut his supply lines. Uh, he's drawing on his own experiences, all going all the way back to the Mexican War, uh, because Winfield Scott, in Scott's campaign to take Mexico City, essentially does the same thing, cuts his supply lines. Uh, Earlier in, uh, um, in 1863, uh, and going back re really into uh, 1862, late 1862, Grant attempts a campaign going down through central Mississippi, from Tennessee down by land through central Mississippi. He ends up turning back because Confederate attacks against his supply lines, but on that campaign he noticed how much there was in the, in the Mississippi countryside that could potentially sustain an army. So when he crosses the river, he knows it's going to be a risk. Uh, recommendations are and thoughts are from commanders back in Washington, including Lincoln, this is a mistake, uh, what you're doing. But Grant was quite confident that he could do this, uh, and hence he starts the campaign. And we should probably also mention this is, a, this is in the U.S. Army where the field commander in some ways is supreme, right? He doesn't have that much back in Washington ordering him so much as suggesting, correct? Uh, correct, and in part because of communications. And it is during the Vicksburg campaign where orders do arrive uh, from Washington, from the general-in-chief, telling Grant to break contact and head south into Louisiana where another army was attempting to take a very small fortification on the Mississippi River at a place called Port Hudson. When Grant gets this order, he immediately rejects it and says this order would not be given if uh, General Halleck, who was commander, uh, general-in-chief, if, if General Halleck understood the situation, he would not give this order. He would understand it's out of date, and Grant ignored it. So with that uh, in mind, you know, ignoring an order, what was the upshot of that? Obviously, Vicksburg fell, so the Halleck uh, couldn't have been too upset. But was there kind of a follow-up between him and Halleck uh, where Halleck said, hey, you, you probably should have followed my orders, but good job? Or what happened with that? Yeah, which is a, 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 a good question on this relationship between Grant and Halleck. Because early in the war, when Grant is fighting at places like Belmont, Missouri, uh, and Shiloh, Halleck is Grant's commander. Halleck is still out in the West. And it is, a, it is not a very good relationship. Halleck did not like Grant, was suspicious of Grant, was jealous of Grant's success. At this point, Halleck is still Grant's commanding officer, but Halleck is starting to recognize, uh, somewhat reluctantly, Grant as a military commander. Uh, and so at this point, Halleck is not going to question Grant's decision making, especially because this is in just a matter of days, really in three or four days from Grant rejecting that order, Grant has Vicksburg besieged. He, he has the Confederate Army trapped in Vicksburg, and everybody knows at that point it's just a matter of time before Vicksburg falls. So Grant is essentially successful at that point. It's always easier to, uh, to uh, go before the boss for chewing out when you've had a couple of uh, victories under your belt, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so we've now seen Grant kind of, as you said, come <laughs> into his own, right? And now is when he, he's, he's moving towards the big call-up, right? We're headed for his kind of apotheosis as the, the general of the armies in 1864. So Lincoln famously called him a general who will fight. What makes Grant different from his predecessors commanding in Virginia when he takes command, um, and I'm, I'm doing air quotes around command because there's some command structure there, but essentially he's commanding the army in Virginia. So once he goes to Virginia in the 1864 campaign, what makes him different from his predecessors? 
Uh, Grant, the difference from, with Grant and his predecessors is one, he has in his mind what the overall objective of fighting this war is, what the end state is, and that is to defeat the Confederacy and maintain the Union. Uh, and his determination is to do just that. He never takes his eye off the ball. Uh, and he understands by the time we get to 1864, when he does take overall command of all Union forces, that this war is only going to be won with an attritional fight that is going to eliminate the Confederates' ability to, to maintain and undertake military operations. Uh, and so when he takes overall command uh, and begins the Overland Campaign, which is the <clears throat> Union's Army of the Potomac, for all ostensible purposes commanded by Grant, although George Meade is the direct Army commander, Grant's there with the Army. Uh, in this instance, the Army of the Potomac is going up against Robert E. Lee, which it has done a number of times. And in virtually every instance, Lee defeats the Army of the Potomac. The Army of the Potomac retreats back to Washington, licks its wounds until Lincoln names another commander. In this instance, with Grant in command, uh, the first engagement with Lee's army comes at the Battle of the Wilderness in the first few days of May of 1864. After two days of brutal, bloody fighting, uh, Grant, has, Grant determines that he cannot beat Lee where they are. Lee's position is simply too strong. And so, uh, for the soldiers in the Army of the Potomac, word comes down the line at the end of the second day of fighting, pull out, pull out, we're pulling out, and they, they begin marching down a road east, and they all know what's going to happen. They, they've, they've been through this dance before. They know they're going to come to the fork in the road, and the army is going to turn to the left. It's going to turn to the north. It's going to turn to the road back to Washington, where once again, they'll go into camp and wait till a new commander is appointed. When they come to that fork in the road, and by accounts of any number of soldiers, they could see far enough ahead, the army wasn't turning to the left, it was turning to the right. To the right, to the south, to the right towards Richmond, to the right to further battle with Lee's army. And at that point, the army knew they had a different commander. And that's what separates Grant from his predecessors. He was willing to do what had to be done to win this fight. In today's parlance, I think we would say they all knew the road home had to go through Richmond and that's where they were headed. Grant was determined to beat Lee's army. When on the Overland Campaign, uh, for those of us that have kind of read into it a little bit more, we're struck by just the sheer, almost comedy of errors that Grant has with a lot of his subordinate commanders. He has a grand plan in place to use maneuver, and it all seems to come to naught because his subordinates can't seem to kind of quite get far enough down the road in many cases. So can you talk me talk us through like how does Grant handle subordinates who aren't measuring up, who are not quite there, who are perhaps to use our term from earlier kind of mediocre, including George Meade, uh, including George Meade. Uh, Grant has uh, at times I would say too much tolerance for some incapable or less than, than operable commanders. Uh, in part, uh, some of those commanders are political appointees. Uh, um, Burnside being one of those. And Grant recognizes that, as Clausewitz reminds us, war is a continuation of politics. And, and Grant understands why Lincoln needs these political generals in their position to maintain uh, support for the war effort. Again, Grant understanding what the end state is, that there is a po political element to this. So his toleration for them, some of them um, at times is perhaps excessive. He does, however, if we're thinking of, of 1864 and the Overland Campaign, uh, we have to remember there are other major operations going on at the same time, one in the Shenandoah Valley, one coming up towards Richmond from the coast, one in the Gulf uh, Coast moving against Mobile. Those are all political generals commanding those campaigns. Grant expected not much at all from those campaigns, in part because they were political generals, but he understood that those campaigns, even if not winning great battles, were going to keep Confederate forces occupied, which again, his predecessors had not recognized. Today we would, we would refer to this as, as the advantage of interior lines. The Confederates were able to do that quite well. So he did find those positions for those less than able commanders that could still contribute to the overall war effort. Uh, the, the problems on the Overland Campaign, I would say, is it was not so much 
grant subordinate commanders and their ineffectiveness, but the extraordinary effectiveness of Robert E. Lee as a tactical commander, uh, which is why Grant has to continually maneuver as Lee is so good uh, at anticipating and maneuvering his own, own army, whereas the previous opponents Grant went up against, I think Grant would have had them beaten in the first battle or two, but Lee is just that good. And kind of on that note, because uh, the Overland Campaign is really known as kind of almost the epitome of attritional warfare in American, in kind of the American ma- imagination, almost more than World War One in the American imagination, because it's it's us. Mm-hmm. So, is there a moment when Grant suddenly realizes that the way we're winning this is attritional warfare, where we're just going to kill each other until the other side drops, and I know I have more. Is that like a, a realization he has, or does he just kind of stumble upon it? Uh, it's a realization, but um, at least uh, for the, the evidence we have, Grant comes to this realization far earlier than the Overland Campaign, uh, after the Battle of Shiloh in April of 1862. So the war is, is only a year into the war. No one knew it was going to be another three years, but Grant said after Shiloh, because of the number of casualties, 23,000 total casualties for that, that battle, far exceeding anything that the United States has seen previously. Grant said that after Shiloh, I realized that this war would only be won by complete conquest, uh, which suggests a, attritional war. Uh, and Grant's general philosophy of war, when he was asked about it, and Bill, you had asked about it earlier, and I didn't address this directly. Uh, Grant said, the art of war is simple enough. Find out where your enemy is, get at him as soon as you can, strike him as hard as you can, and keep moving. The keep moving part suggests this is not gonna end in one decisive battle. Uh, It is going to be an attritional fight. And in the Overland Campaign, that's where we see Grant, I think, fully accept that. Uh, Again, separating himself from his predecessors, that this is only going to be won until the Confederacy can no longer fight. And we're going to have to do that by engaging in what was near constant battle for well over four weeks till Lee goes into uh, the trenches around Richmond and, and Petersburg. So I'll, I'll ask what is both a stupid and obvious question, but I think it's both instructive and important. If, if Grant understands, if he understands strategic attrition, if he understands a campaign rather than battle-focused kind of strategy and operations, why then does he not just continue to reinforce his army and continue to attack in these big battles throughout the end of 1864? Why is he forced to sit outside Petersburg for a year? Why doesn't he just keep the campaign going? Ah, uh, which is a which is a good question. You know, in the the lead up to the the siege um, around Richmond and Petersburg, and in the Overland Campaign, which lasts about a month, uh, in which. Um, Grant's army and Lee's army engage really in what were four, I'll, I'll say, significant battles. In each of those instances, what Grant was looking to do was to outmaneuver Lee, gain an advantage, and defeat Lee's army. Force Lee either to surrender or the army breaks up, no longer able to, to carry out operations. Uh, again, because Lee is so good, um, Grant is unable to do that. By the time Lee gets to Richmond and Petersburg and withdraw- withdraws into the fortifications, which have been developed now for uh, really three years by, by the point they go into uh, the siege operations, Grant recognizes that he could take Richmond, but the cost in, in life would simply be prohibitive. Just could not do it. Uh, he didn't know how long Lee would hold out, and this was not that different from, in Grant's view, Vicksburg, that by besieging Richmond, he would be able to shut off Richmond, uh, and with Sherman's army operating um, to the south in, in Georgia, there could not be reinforcements coming. So it was a calculated gamble on, on Grant's part that he was, he was not prepared to, to sacrifice that many lives to take Richmond immediately. And was he also, uh, I'm, I'm certain he had the presidential campaign of 1864 foremost in his mind of one, massive fruitless casualties right before the election, but also what Sherman could possibly accomplish with Lee bottled up. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, how, the, how the election was really weighing into his thoughts? Yeah, you know, they, the, the siege begins around Richmond after the Overland campaign first or second week of June of 1864. So we're talking about five months till the presidential uh, election. Uh, and, and this is a, another um, 
example of, of Grant and his capabilities as a strategic commander, another example of what Grant set his apart from many of his predecessors of Grant recognizing the political elements of warfare. Uh, Lincoln's re-election in 1864 was not a foregone conclusion at all. There was a very strong candidate running against him on essentially a peace platform, a former general who, who had been very popular. Uh, and Lincoln was not at all certain he was going to win. Grant recognized that what was happening on the battlefield was going to influence the presidential election. And Grant also knew that if Lincoln lost, there would probably be a negotiated settlement and the ultimate objective of maintaining the Union would be lost. So Grant knew battlefield success could well decide the outcome of the election. He knew he was entrapped in the siege operations against Lee around Richmond and, and Virginia. To resolve that, it would, might cost prohibitive numbers of casualties Lincoln could lose because of that, so he continued the siege operations. So his guidance to Sherman, that you have got to take Atlanta early enough to influence the election. Uh, which meant not just a couple days before the election, but weeks before the election because, again, the, the time for, for communications. Uh, Sherman understood this as well and so pushes to take Atlanta, which he does on September the 3rd of 1864, enough time to influence the election. Uh, so that, that campaign, beyond just the military success of taking Atlanta, it's Grant's awareness of the political elements uh, and how that is influencing the war, I think, that is most impressive on Grant. So let's kind of put these guys, put all kind of these threads together, this, this understanding of attritional warfare, this understanding of the political uh, implications of what happens on the battlefield. Because uh, one of the things we do at the Command General Staff College is, of course, not just teach them what happened in the past, but how it has relevance to today. So what lessons does Grant have for a field grid officer in the United States Army? I think the primary one is, is what we were just making reference to of, of understanding for, for field grade and, and of, of course above, um, that war and battle are not separate from the national policy objectives. That if the battles are not moving towards the national policy objectives, then they're just simply battle for battle's sake. Uh, and there are any number of instances we could see not just in military history, but more specifically U.S. military history in which it was battle for battle's sake. Grant understood the connection and he understood that to achieve the national policy end state that he had a responsibility of seeing the connections and the political implications of the war and helping with that and not simply saying that's civilian leadership. Lincoln deals with the politics, I deal with the war. Lincoln had a responsibility as well to understand the national policy end state and how the battles could help achieve that. So in other words, the political leadership and the military leadership both have to take responsibility for bridging that gap. And Grant and Lincoln, again, I think did that uh, in a very almost perfect way by the time we get to 1864. Yeah, and I think it's also uh, important for listeners to remember, especially those who are not um, terribly familiar with the details of the Civil War, Grant is not just the field commander. He is the commander of all of the armies. So he is the strategic commander who is issuing orders not just to his corps in Virginia, but to Sherman, to, you mentioned, the other efforts. So he, he is very much a strategic commander, even though he's often made almost a tactical level commander. Uh, very much so, and, and this is, um, you know, I, I occasionally, um, I did a talk a, a few weeks ago for a, a history group in Ireland uh, in which I'm fairly critical of Lincoln as a strategic commander, uh, in part because very early in the war, early in 1862, where the only major fight has been the first battle of Bull Run the previous summer, Lincoln lays out to one, one of his generals Lincoln's view of the strategy for winning this war. And Lincoln says, in essence, my, my understanding of this is we have superior resources. And Lincoln doesn't quite use these, these words. He said, but my understanding is we have superior resources. The Confederates have the advantage of maneuvering on internal lines. And again, Lincoln doesn't use those terminologies, but that, that's what he describes. And, he, and then Lincoln goes on to say, my take is that our advantage can overmatch their advantage by undertaking multiple simultaneous offensives. So they cannot reinforce using internal lines. 
None of his generals seem to grasp this until Grant, when he takes command in March of 1864, lays out for Lincoln five simultaneous offensives taking place at the same time. And immediately, Lincoln understood exactly what Grant wanted to do. Grant understood, Lincoln understood what he wanted to do. So that collaboration on the strategic level, they were exactly on the same page. Uh, and so Grant's abilities as a strategist becomes quite apparent then. So it sounds like the uh, previous uh, generals had read their Joe money too literally, and Grant had not. Um, shifting focus a little bit, because again, uh, we, we tend to think of Grant in this box of being on a horse in 1864, but Grant, of course, is also president. So the, the kind of the, the uh, short encyclopedia entry on Grant as president is that he, he himself was not corrupt, but his administration was incredibly corrupt. It kind of rivals the Harding administration for corruption. Uh, and then he was a failed president. His policies failed. His subordinates were corrupt. The country faces significant economic problems during his presidency. Uh, so, A, do you buy that? And B, if not, uh, how do you think Grant's presidency should be assessed? Yeah, you know, Grant's presidency in, in the last maybe 10 years has undergone some significant um, review and revision. Uh, where he has has risen in the rankings of former presidents consistently over the last 10 years. And I think uh, the, the previous interpretation of corruption, 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 uh, certainly there was corruption in his administration. What administration hasn't had corruption? Uh, I think the, the closer look, however, demonstrates that um, many of his policies uh, dealing in part with economics and especially with civil rights were far more successful. Uh, than, than he has been given credit for. His fights against the Klan um, and the organization and prosecution of Klan leaders, um, now that's, that's becoming much more apparent. Uh, Grant, however, you know, his, his successes as president doesn't come near to his success as a military commander, uh, despite his recognition of the political aspects of warfare. And I think part of that comes from leadership as situational and leading in a military organization with the hierarchy and structure and formality of that compared to a civilian administration is quite different. And during the war, Grant had the um, advantage that many of the senior commanders in the United States Army were West Pointers. And therefore, Grant knew of them, he knew of their reputation, he knew their capabilities, and so he knew, already had some idea who he could rely on and what to expect of various commanders. Even the political generals, he had some sense of that. When we move into his presidency, however, he is dealing with politicians, a whole different realm in which he's dealing with people who he did not know, did not know their backgrounds, and was far more trusting. Uh, his, his default was to trust, which in politics is, may well be fatal. Uh, so, so given that, I think, uh, yes, his presidency, his abilities as president, um, he's now getting some of the recognition I think he, he probably has deserved for some time. Okay, uh, and I hope you will entertain a kind of an off-the-wall question here. Um, these events, especially the events of the Civil War, are often portrayed in, in film and um, television. Uh, and, and it seems like the writers and directors never quite know what to do with Grant. Uh, he's, he's usually portrayed as a side character. He's kind of a, a gruff, uh, professional, but only just person. Um, you know, in, in the movie Lincoln, he's, he's, he's important, but he's just there. Um, do you think those are accurate portrayals of his personality, or do you think there's, there's a, a change that should be made to that? Uh, I think it's, it's fairly accurate in the sense that, that I, I think there's no question Grant was an extreme introvert, uh, probably from birth, but certainly his childhood did not help, help change that. Uh, he was not bombastic. Uh, he was not showy. He did not give grand speeches. Um, later in his presidency, he got more comfortable giving speeches, but early on, the last thing he ever wanted to do was, was to have to stand up in front of, of a group of people and, and speak. One of his, one of his uh, staff officers said Grant, Grant could stay silent in three languages, uh, which sort of describes him. So it's a, it, it's a it's, great line. It, it, it is, and it describe, describes him so well. Uh, Grant was very 
uh, self-effacing. Um, he knew he did not have significant talents otherwise. We mentioned earlier he didn't have you know, business talent, he didn't have musical talent. He said he recognized two tunes. One was Yankee Doodle, the other wasn't. <laughs> so he, he knew his limitations and because that he was a very reticent individual. So I think the fact that he is not up front as um, we think of, of uh, a George Patton movie that's not Grant. And so I think it's a fairly fair characterization of Grant, this quiet introvert, but yet who exercised extraordinarily capable command. Mm-hmm. And I, you have uh, repeatedly mentioned, without explicitly saying so, one of the great advantages we have with Grant is he wrote a great deal about himself. I, I gather his memoirs were written largely because he was kind of broke at the time, but he did write a lot about himself. And of course, the Civil War is a massively documented war. Um, so, so if I understand that correctly, there is a great deal that, that listeners can discover of Grant directly from the man himself. Yeah, his, his memoirs um, considered one of the, the, the greatest uh, uh, pieces of writing from an American. Uh, it's an extraordinary read. Uh, there is sort of one of those, I'll say, conspiracy theories out there that Mark Twain actually wrote Grant's memoirs. Now, they were contemporaries. They, they knew each other quite well, especially during Grant's presidency. And Twain was, was essential in getting the, the memoirs published. Uh, however, if, if you read his memoirs and then go back and read his, today we would consider them after action reports, other communications, you would see it is the same style. It is clear, it is concise, it is well-chosen words. Uh, so unless Twain was mimicking Grant's style for hundreds of pages in the memoirs, Grant was the author of that. And, and it is, it, it's a fascinating read uh, to see what Grant was thinking, or at least his recollection of what he was thinking throughout the war. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I, that as you've been talking, I see uh, a lot of familiarity in Grant with the, uh, with the officer corps. Because for every Patton, there's 20 more like Grant. So, when you talk about Grant being a steady, deliberate fighter, and I often see the much in uh, being a student of the Second World War, I see much the same style of warfare that we brought to that war. Uh, not the flashy maneuver, but the instead the steady, deliberate, hard choices that are made. So, where do you place Grant, kind of the pantheon of the American generalship? I mean, is he at the top? Is he in the middle? Is he kind of towards the bottom? I would assume not towards the bottom. But where, where would you kind of place him in terms of importance for, uh, for an American officer to study? Uh, I would put, of course, I would put him very close to the top. Um, <laughs> biased answer. Yeah, yeah, it's a biased answer. Um, my, you know, the, the, the top three, my top three, it's, it's almost cliche to say, and for different reasons, but Washington, Grant, and Eisenhower, each from a different century, uh, but each the right person at the right time with the right capabilities. Uh, and Grant, yes, uh, I would put um, towards the top of, of that, well, no, not above Washington. I, I, st- I will keep Washington at the top of the list, but, but Grant fair. very much so, and in part, Washington is almost the unattainable. We, he, he, is, he is such that, you know, sort of marble man in, in our mythology, but Grant is not. Grant had significant faults, and that's, again, what Grant won more battles, though. Grant won more battles. Um, they both won their war, which is, which is maybe what, what counts. Uh, Grant, Grant's more the approachable, again, because of all of his faults and all the difficulties he had, uh, always fighting to overcome it, and became extraordinarily successful again. Uh, so in that sense... Yeah, yeah, I, I think you, you make an excellent point to bring us back to the beginning. Uh, you know, Washington is the marble statue, right? It's, he is a, an almost singular figure in history, not just American history, whereas Grant, uh, as you've said, it, he didn't so much have feet of clay as he had an entire body of clay and a, a brain that worked for the Army. Um, but yeah, I think you made a very good point about how Grant is, he is the American, both in his uh, positives and negatives. Mm-hmm. Dr. Labor, thank you for being with us. This was a fascinating talk. Thank you for the invitation again.